Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Chris Donat, a financial technology analyst at Piper Chandler. Uh, welcome to the keynote speech and fireside chat of our uh, 17th annual Exchanges in Financial Technology Conference. I'm very pleased today to have with me Al Kelly, who is the chairman and CEO of Visa. Al's been CEO since 2016, uh, chairman since April of 2019, and of course he's on the board since 2014. So I'm not, not going to belabor the, um, the resume here, but uh, Al does have extensive experience from, from a career at, at American Express before joining Visa. So um, again, want to welcome everyone here. Uh, just to orient you all with the schedule, so this fireside chat will last 40, 45 minutes, then we'll have a break and resume, uh, you know, at the top of the hour, or, or sorry, at, um, at 1.30 Eastern time. So uh, with that, Al, we're delighted to have you here. I wanted to jump in with a question of, uh, of the current environment here, because you run what has to be one of the most globally dispersed companies on the planet. You get more than half of your revenue from outside the United States. So how has the pandemic changed how you manage in these early days? And, and are you able to do things like delegate more to local executives? Uh, what's different? Well, first of all, Chris, thank you for having me. And I uh, hope everybody on this call is uh, safe and, uh, and, and doing well. It certainly has been a crazy time. I'm in my 12th week lockdown and um, it's uh, truly amazing, although I've found a routine, so I feel good about how things are going. Yes, uh, one of the things that people ask me, uh, you know, what surprised you when you moved from a board member to uh, being the CEO and actually the globality of the company. I mean, I knew how global it was, but it's, it really is a global company. Uh, we operate in all but five countries in the world, and those five countries we're not allowed to operate in because of U.S. sanctions. So we're not in Cuba, Crimea, Syria, Iran, and North Korea. We're in every other country and territory in the world. We have 130 offices in 76 uh, countries, and we settle every night in 160 different currencies. Um, you know, at all times, we've got to have some kind of global values and principles, and then trust local leaders to make good judgments uh, based on those those values and, uh, and and principles. And, you know, it's not a lot of rocket science here, you know, having strong, capable leaders and a, and a very, very good flow of communications in a global company is critical. Uh, we operate in five regions, uh, North America, uh, uh, Latin America, Central Europe, Middle East and Africa, Europe and uh, Asia Pacific. Each of those five regions is headed by a regional president. Four of the five regional presidents have over 10 years of experience at, at Visa. Uh, Charlotte Hogg is the only exception who's got three years of experience and uh, Charlotte runs uh, Europe. You know, to your question, Chris, it's interesting. I, I don't know that much has changed because of COVID. Um, and, you know, as a global company, one of the things that we're used to is stuff happens around the world every day, you know, whether it's unrest in Venezuela or unrest that we've been dealing with in Hong Kong before COVID and now, unfortunately, uh, recently in the last couple of weeks, you know, floods in India, uh, our offices in, in uh, Denver or in Highlands Park, which was a, literally across the street from one of the more recent um, 
high schools, shooting inc uh, incidences in America. Our offices in Nairobi were recently in a building that was shot by Somalian terrorists, uh, and uh, while our employees were there. So, it, it, unfortunately, when you run a global company, you run into a lot of issues. We've been, uh, we obviously have, uh, you know, do a lot of listening to our local uh, leaders. Uh, we have, as you can imagine, processes and, and meeting cadences that, that allow us to stay close to what's going on around the, around the world. But basically, it's about uh, putting good people in place, having established guidelines and, and principles, allowing local ad adaption of those and having good ongoing communications. And for me, uh, I used I was traveling 85% of the time prior to COVID. Uh, it's a different world, but uh, in many ways, uh, I'm working longer days, not necessarily a great thing, working longer days and, and having probably more client uh, interaction and talking to more of our employees than I ever did because a lot of that time was in airplanes. So uh, I think that we, as a company, I've been very proud. After the first few weeks, were rocky, right? I mean, where everybody's trying to find their ground. But in the last eight or nine weeks, I think we really have been on our front foot. Uh, we're operating largely as, as normal, and that's with about 97% of our employees globally working from home still today. Got it. Um, one ask another question about your your executive leadership. You just mentioned that of the of your regional heads, uh, four of the five have more than 10 years of experience. One thing that's striking to me when you look at the proxy is that most of the named executive officers are between sort of four and seven years at Visa, uh, the exception being Phil Sheedy, who's got the remarkable 27-year tenure. That, how should investors think about the, the mix of experience that you get kind of out in the regions versus what you have in the uh, in the executive offices, so to speak. Well, you're right. If you're that power alley is uh, four to seven years. You know, that said, there's a heck of a lot more than that in terms of running the company. If the company was, if we relied on the five people in the proxy, we'd be in trouble. We need uh, the other uh, 19,995 folks to make up for our inadequacies. Um, we have, uh, I think investors should feel very good about our, our team. I've um, had the ability to work and the pleasure of working with many, many good leadership teams. This is a very good leadership team. It's got great collective experience, great diversity. It's a very collaborative group. Uh, there's a good distribution in terms of age um, uh, on, the, on the executive team. I mean, I think we range from 44 to uh, 61. Some of our newest executives uh, who are not in the proxy have been great experience. Paul Fabara joined us uh, about nine months ago. He had been at Amex, although we did not overlap. I didn't know Paul at Amex. Um, and he's our chief risk officer. He worked at Amex and Barclays before that. And Jennifer Grant, who runs our global human resources, has been with us for about a year and a half. She came from Air Products. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the executive committee, which is there's 13 of us. We have, I actually looked at this yesterday. We actually have a hundred years of visa experience. Uh, although to, if, if, if you take Bill Sheedy out, we have uh, uh, 73 years of experience because Bill's been here with 27 years. Chris Clark, who runs Asia Pacific, has been here 18 years. 
Uh, Oliver Jenkins, who runs North America, has been here 11 years. So those three are kind of our veterans. Eight of us, to your point, not just the ones in the proxy, but eight of the 13 people on the executive committee are here four to se uh, uh, three to seven years. And then you've got uh, Paul and uh, uh, Charlotte Hogg who are, and, and Jennifer Grant, who are the newer people. I'd also say we have great strength beneath that organization of leaders at the executive level. We pay a lot of attention to talent. At every single board meeting, every single board meeting, we review one area of the company from a talent perspective. And this year at our strategic session with the board in July, we're actually gonna do a, a robust half day talent review of the company. So it, it's something I personally pay a lot of attention to. Our board uh, appreciates staying very, very close to uh, the people in the organization. And they have a good, I'm one of these people who wants to give a good deal of exposure to the up and coming leaders in our organization. So even once a year, uh, Chris, since I've been CEO, we'll have a, a dinner with the board where I'll invite uh, you know 10 up and coming people or 10 brand new people to the company who are people they wouldn't normally get a chance to interact with. So they get a, a good flavor for the folks below. So I think investors should feel very good about our people. And for that matter, they, that's what we're all about. We don't make a darn thing we are a business of intellectual horsepower and innovate, innovation, creativity, experience, relationships, and that's what people bring to the party. And, and so investors should feel good about it. Great. Um, part of the reason I'm asking these questions about the, you know, the key employees is I was operating under the thesis that in this environment, it would be difficult to bring on new people. So who's ever kind of the team you start the pandemic with is the team you finish. Well, you turn around and kind of uh, prove my thesis wrong this week when you announced the appointment of, of Chris Newkirk as chief strategy officer. I guess that was last week. Um, it's a new role. And it's actually, as I look at it, you know, one of your first big hires since you've been in the CEO seat. Can you just give us a little color on that? What's, what's new about the position and, and why did you hire Chris? Yeah. Well, he's, I think, the fourth EC member I've hired. Um, I hired Charlotte Hogg, who runs Europe, Paul Fabera, um, Chief Risk Officer, Jennifer Grant, the head of HR, and, and now Chris Newkirk. We talked, you, you mentioned Bill Sheedy. Uh, in, in the fall of last year, Bill came to me and said, hey, I, th I think I'm going to retire. And I said to him, A, you're not going to, and B, what the hell would you do with yourself? So we actually, after a number of discussions, agreed that Bill would go to halftime. So Bill's a halftime member of the executive committee, although he's always there when I look for him. So I don't know how halftime he really is, but that's, that's what he is. Bill had a number of responsibilities, and uh, we did have a strategy group underneath Bill, but I decided it was an opportunity to relook some of the things we were doing and decided we could benefit from a chief strategy officer. There's a lot going on in payments. It's, you know, I've been involved in this space for three and a half decades and probably more has happened in the next last three years than in the 32 years before that. And I didn't use a search firm. I literally started asking people, who, who should I think about talking to? Uh, who might be restless? Who might be willing to move? I was also looking for a real athlete. Uh, I didn't want to hire somebody who would only come in to be the chief strategy officer. I wanted somebody who everybody would want to move to another role probably sooner than I'd want, in this case, Chris to move. 
I didn't know Chris. Uh, Capital One is a great client of ours. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Rich Fairbank and the team of people that he has built at, at Capital One is phenomenal. And it's a very, very progressive bank, one of the ones that we most enjoy working with. But um, uh, somebody introduced me to Chris. Uh, I don't even remember who it was. Uh, he and I chatted. And then as we talked more and more, I think uh, he saw it as a great opportunity. And I veteran. He's a 12-year veteran of Capital One. He's worked overseas in Europe. He's worked in uh, the United States. And in Chris, I think we really are getting the athlete that I sought. I, I, I think Chris will have a long career at Visa and will do a whole bunch of jobs uh, before uh, he sunsets his uh, career. So we're excited about having him. He's on a uh, vacation for a couple of weeks now with his family. I presume it's a staycation. And uh, uh, we look forward to him starting uh, a week from next Monday. Got it. Al, I want to ask a couple of questions about the, the current environment and how sort of the pandemic has changed uh, the world from, from a lot of different perspectives. But one thing we saw within March quarter was uh, the contactless volumes up 40% year on year. And that's been something that you know, there's other geographies around the world where contactless is, is, uh, is tremendous. In the United States, it's been a little bit of a laggard. Uh, just as we think about the, the revenue implications for Visa, do you see, or should we think about contactless card transactions as displacing uh, cash, or are they displacing other gifts or swipes, debit and credit transactions? This is a tremendous opportunity for the company uh, and for, for uh, players in the ecosystem. We call it a tap to pay. Uh, uh, contact the same thing but we call it tap to pay it's the most frictionless way to pay in a face-to-face -face environment for both the consumer and the the seller or the merchant uh, it has really become a default in many parts of the world uh, in fact as you alluded to the u.s is much further behind but gaining momentum we have just about 200 million cards in the united states now that are enabled for tap to pay chris it is the most in the world by the way um, we hope to have 300 million enabled by the end of this calendar year, but that's still only a third of the 900 million credit and debit cards there are in the United States. So there's still a lot of room for growth. Uh, tap to pay definitely displaces cash in 12 countries around the world. Not over 90% of Visa's transactions are tap to pay. In uh, 50 countries, more than 50% of the face-to-face -face transactions are, are tap to pay. And what's really exciting about tap to pay is that it, we have clear proof that it increases the engagement of the customers. So for, for example, globally, we've seen a, an average of a 20% lift in volume for people who start to tap to pay. If we look at the UK, where we've had a long set of experiences, especially with the tube in uh, UK transport, anybody who uses tap to pay in the UK uh, uh, subway system ends up having a 70% increase in, in, in transactions. And in Asia, where tap to pay is really taking off, we're seeing four times more transactions for a tap to pay user than a non-tap-to-pay user. The US is still kind of mid-single digits in terms of tap-to-pay, so way behind. But it's an enormous opportunity. The average American, Chris, makes 12 
cash transactions a month. And 55% of all transactions in the US are that are under $10 are cash. So the opportunity is really significant. And what's happened with COVID-19, and this is one of the really positive movements related to what's happened with COVID-19, is that people are seeing cash as, a, as something that carries germs. And uh, we've seen numerous merchants actually say, hey, I don't wanna take cash. Uh, so I think it's going to accelerate the uh, adoption of, of tap to pay in the United States and and continue to uh, will continue to see higher penetrations of it outside the United States. So I, I think demand is rising and will rise at a pace much greater than it would have had it not been for COVID-19. Understood. Um, transition a little bit from, I, I think, you know, Visa was tapped to pay and the industry in general, that's an important public health consideration and, and does a lot to keep people's minds and one source of stress and risk in the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of pain out in the economy these days because of the pandemic. And we've seen some lobbying efforts by the National Restaurant Association and the American Nightclub Association, which I confess I did not know was a thing until seeing about the National uh, American Nightclub Association, the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, they're both looking for reductions in interchange fees. And my question to you is, would Visa consider doing any sort of temporary reduction in interchange fees to help certain merchants who are under distress? Or how are you thinking about interchange fees in this environment? Well, make a, let me make a couple of points about interchange fees. First of all, it is a vital part of a vibrant, innovative electronic payment system. Plain and simple it is. Secondly, it supports financial institutions' ability to extend credit, which is, you know, the engine for uh, commerce uh, in, in the world and enables the purchasing power of consumers. The third point I'd make is that, uh, you know, certainly to the degree governments interject into, you know, pricing in general, I think it's a bad practice. I think free markets are the best way to set debt pricing. That said, you know, we're at a time where the most important thing that has to happen is we have to restart the economies and reopen places. And I think in doing so, the, as, the, as economies have been rocked in the last 90 days, the, the most important uh, bedrock principle I think everybody should be following is do no harm. And I certainly get very, very concerned if somebody steps in and says, you know, let's start to adjust pricing at a time when we should be doing no harm, because I think it could have a wide ranging implications that are not going to be positive in a time where we need to bring country, countries and, and states and reopen them and get those small business owners and those restaurants and everybody else's up and going. That's the most important thing that can happen right now for uh, all of these, all of these small businesses. Okay, and um, remind me, Visa typically does an update of a uh, certain pricing every year, but you, you postponed that one this year, right? In the effort to keep stability and we, we do twice a year, Chris. We do okay. uh, changes to the ecosystem. Um, uh, most of the time, not all the time, they involve pricing. 
uh, we were due to do one in April, and uh, we have we have postponed it for for now. And that one did have pricing changes, but it had pricing changes up and up and down, affecting uh, uh, different uh, different industries. But we did postpone it because, again, in the spirit of doing no harm, we've actually tried to create uh, a think about the infrastructure like we would during the holidays that we don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt uh, the economies of the world any more than they've been disrupted already. Okay. Uh, and then just one last one about sort of volume and the pandemic. You, you disclosed some data earlier this week um, about May activity, and one of the notable positives was uh, in the United States, card not present excluding travel, which I think is basically e-commerce is up nearly 40% year on year. Um, can you talk a bit about the benefits of e-commerce, not just because it displaces cash, but also because there's other revenue streams that you get from e-commerce, like the cyber sources, and the public understands how e-commerce plays for it. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the card not present, excluding travel, never went below zero. It got very close to zero uh, at the end of March. It was a very low single digit in terms of growth, and then it was up. 10% in mid-April is up, I think, around 30% in May. And as you said last week, it was up almost 40%, which is incredible. Um, and the growth trajectory has has gone up even as face-to-face -face has started to come back a little bit. Although, I again, if you looked at the data we disclosed and looked at the graphs, face-to-face -face is still like negative 20 to 25%. So it's not as if it's doing extraordinarily well. The, the This e-commerce runway is again one of the most exciting things to come out of COVID. Um, uh, the reality is that only 14% of global retail spending is in e-commerce. So there is an enormous opportunity for growth. And for us at Visa, it completely displaces cash. Uh, you know, you can't stuff cash into a iPad or an iPhone or any other uh, device. So we get around three times the volume in e-commerce that we would get in the face-to-face -face world because cash isn't an option. So it's a, it's a, it's a great thing for us. Economically, we're indifferent. Uh, I think sometimes people have different views, uh, but in terms of the actual fees we get on the transaction and processing the transaction, we, we get the same fees for whether it's card present or card not present. So economically, we're indifferent. But you alluded to in your comment that uh, we could do other things, and that's true. We we have we can sell generally more value-added services in in a card not present e-commerce situation. Uh, and let me give you two examples. One you mentioned, and I'll, come, come, I'll do that one second. One is fraud. Ever since we put chips in cards in the United States, fraud has shifted, and this had nothing to do with COVID. Fraud shifted from the face-to-face uh, -face world to the uh, online card not present world. And so our risk and data capabilities become very, very valuable in that environment. You also mentioned CyberSource. It's, you know, it's become a very meaningful business. Trillion dollars of volume, 450,000 merchants around the world. And it's a gateway that enables e-commerce or omni uh, omni-commerce for, for a merchant. It's in essence, when people should think about it, our cyber source is the equivalent of kind of the terminal in a face-to-face -face world. It's enabling 
payments of any kind to be, be taken by, by, at somebody's website for, for commerce. And so we think that between things like cyber fraud capabilities, risk capabilities, we have the ability, because e-commerce is moving so rapidly, that we can sell those other services. The last point I'd make, Chris, is it wouldn't surprise me if we have seen three to four years, or we will see three to four years of acceleration of e-commerce adoption in a six-month period because of what happened in COVID. I mean, we've seen huge increases in the number of first-time e-commerce around the world. We had 13 million people in Latin America activate an e-commerce transaction for the first time last quarter. Um, we have seen 30% uh, increases in the United States in terms of people who are active in e-commerce. So it's a very exciting uh, development that I think is got some permanence to it in terms of uh, upside for, for the industry and for Visa. Got it. Why don't you shift gears into a set of questions around financial technology and your, your bank relationship. I think about Visa, like since, since the early days, you, as an industry association, Visa's had to strike a balance between the, the bank members, the card issuers, and that's a mix of you know large and small banks. Uh, in today's world, you throw fintechs into the mix. And yesterday at our conference, we had uh, panels with Chime and SoFi, Betterment, Robinhood. Chime was singing the praises of Visa Direct. Can you help us understand though, as, as you have these challenger banks in some ways that are, you know, I think the traditional banks might see them as threats, but um, how do you balance who's, um, whose needs you're, you're trying to help meet, the fintechs or the banks? Very good question. Uh, you know, one of the roles we play is to make the ecosystem as good as it can be. And in my mind, Chris, the more scale, the greater the risk, uh, greater the reach, I should say. The the more security, the more people are comfortable coming on to uh, a network, and it's good for everybody. You know, our business is solely based. One of the things that's a, a bedrock principle of our strategy is partnerships. The the ecosystem is is based on partnerships, and frankly, we're agnostic to who wants to be a partner with us, and we don't pick winners and losers. When it comes to partners, we want to provide individual attention and build a depth of relationship that works for that partner, whether it's a, you know, a big money-centered bank that has a credit card business or it's a, a small fintech that's going to issue credentials. But anybody who's going to grow the nodes on the network where we can add more card credentials or, or any form factor for that matter, and, and on the other side, somebody is going to grow the number of merchants that are, are available for acceptance. We, we want those people to be part of our network. In fact, any, in any good network, each participant should get more out of it than they actually put into it. And that's our goal is to make the network as big and as strong as it can possibly be. And whether it's a big bank or a fintech, I think there's a few things we bring to the party for everybody. One is our brand. Uh, we really have an outstanding brand, and it's every uh, third-party analysis would show that it is the preferred brand in electronic payment systems, and it drives incremental spend when people see it and use a Visa credential. 
The second thing we bring is our, our network platforms, our VisaNet, our, our debit processing, Visa Direct and Earthport, and then you know, downstream both Plaid and uh, B2B Connect. You know, VisaNet operates at almost six nines. It's got world-class cybersecurity. We have 600 APIs that are, uh, that are available to be consumed by our partners. And those APIs now are getting a billion calls a month. Uh, so they're really getting a lot, of, a lot of use. The third thing we bring to the party and why I'm appreciative of the first couple of questions you asked me about people is we bring our people. We bring local expertise about products and services. We bring expertise about issuer and processing solutions, seller solutions, data and, and loyalty. Uh, we've got a big consulting and analytics arm. So those people that we bring to bear and make available locally to a fintech or locally to a, a bank are equally uh, uh, incented to do and bring volume into the network and, and drive high levels of satisfaction. The only thing I would say that's different about the fintechs, and we were a little bit slow to recognize this, is that they can't deal with the same bureaucracy. They want more speed. And so we developed the FinTech Fast Track program. We started it in Europe uh, and we've spread it now around the world. And so people can get our network very, very quickly. And uh, I think that's a real positive for us and for them. But net net, the more the better, big, small, uh, single country, multi-country players, where our door has got a big open sign on it to come talk to us about being a partner on our network. Um, wanted to ask one question on, around the banks. Because um, of Piper Sandler, we watch bank mergers very closely. And Visa had two important wins this year through banks that combined through mergers of equal, so Truist and TCS. And for Truist, BB&T was mostly a Visa shop, while SunTrust issued some cards with MasterCard. I, I know you can't tell us from the truest perspective why you won, but can you give us a little color on how you make that winning pitch when there's a bank merger and, and businesses on the line? Well, I subscribe to the theory that, uh, you know, we're, we're on uh, under a microscope every day. We, we've got to earn our uh, client satisfaction and earn their business every time we work with them. And the day we get complacent is the day that we're in some trouble. In my, in my mind, complacency has to be the enemy. Uh, I, I'm not sure there's a big difference but to that end, whether it's a, a merger situation or just a, a deal renewal, I should say. I mean, it starts with there's a market clearing price, right? There's a, uh, we got to be competitive at some level on price or you're, or you're not going to be in the game. But after that, I think you look to distinguish yourself in different ways. And obviously our brand, which I talked about a few minutes ago, is a big part of that. Capabilities are a big part of it. The people I talked about are a big part of it. The creativity you can bring to the party, the, the, your approach to how you suggest you're going to partner together is important. I think that was our approach both in TCF and with Truist. I think in Truist's case, uh, as you well know, they are undertaking a huge, bold, and exciting move to create a new brand. That is not easy. That is a, a big, big step that uh, Kelly King and Bill Rogers uh, decided to take together and I to establish a new brand. And I think that we spent a lot of time talking to them about brand and how we think about brand and build 
brands. And I, I think that our experience with brand, our view of how the truest brand could get established, I, I, I think resonated with the, uh, the truest team. I also think we, uh, we try to approach these deals by, yeah, you got to get past price and then you got to talk about how together you're going to build a partnership that's, that's targeted and, and based on growth. And that's what we try to do. I, I, you know, it's, it's about having a, a real frank discussion about what it's going to take to grow together and build that relationship through the negotiation so that when you've signed the contract, you're hitting the ground running and you've got a, uh, the people in place and hopefully the basis of a trusted, trans, a trusted relationship to get, to get going. Uh, needless to say, we're thrilled uh, to be partnering with both, both TCF and with Truist. Great. And I have another one from kind of the bank issuer perspective. You mentioned that so you're, you're not no longer spending 85% of your time traveling and your uh, one benefit is you're on the phone more with, with card issuers. But from my research colleagues at Piper Sandler, we know that the card issuers are going to face a number of challenges over coming months. They've got uh, impending charge-offs in the next six months or so, forbearance programs, you got a lot of shifting customer behavior. So how can how can Visa help the card issuers navigate this environment? That's a good question too. You know, we, we, we've been spending a lot of time with our clients just uh, sharing information and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the best clients are sponges for information and, uh, you know, they realize that the more they, they learn and the more access they get to information, the better things are. I, I guess I'd highlight uh, three things, Chris. One, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, our Visa Consulting and Analytics arm, we actually have 500 dedicated consultants now. Last year, they did 1,000 uh, projects. And right now, what are they doing? They're helping issuers set up and optimize their e-commerce strategies. They're helping them rethink authorization they're, as, as the volume is shifted to card not present. Uh, they're helping them analyze their portfolio. They're helping with uh, their digital acceleration, particularly in some cases in terms of uh, uh, acquisition. They're Helping them with risk management, they're helping them with customer engagement. So that we have actively going on with our clients around the world. Second area I'd highlight is risk services. Uh, you know, that's probably the our oldest area of value-added services. I mean, we've been we've had various forms of risk and authentication and authorization products for some time. They're essential to a lot of our clients, and they're very important in this card not present. Uh, e-commerce world as things have shifted. We operate at remarkable scale there. We evaluate in one of our products, our flagship, we evaluate 500 attributes in one millisecond to provide authorization information to our clients. And that product is called Visa Advanced Authorization and a lot of our clients use it. A third area we're helping clients is, is data. We have something called the Visa Analytics Platform we have now 5,000 active clients on that platform. Uh, it is uh, big time up since uh, the COVID started. In fact, we saw a 33% increase in the went to uh, Visa Analytic Platform for in the second quarter, over the second quarter of the, of the prior year. And uh, so I would say that advice, risk services, and data are at the top of the list of the things that we're doing for uh, our clients 
uh, right now. So, and we'll stay engaged and provide the support they need as we move forward. Okay. I wanted to ask you one numbers question about the incentives that you have out there. Because traditionally, we, we think about incentives as being roughly 20% of gross revenues, but it looks like we might see a little bit of a, of a shift in the gross revenue lines that you report, particularly international transactions look like, looks like it's going to be more adversely affected. Um, so basically the question is, should we think about the incentives on international transactions as roughly 20% or, or given that a lot of the incentives are around hard issuance and merchant acceptance and usage, it seem a little different from international transactions. Okay, so let me give a, try to give a little bit of color here. You know, first of all, our philosophy is that we want alignment uh, with our, our clients in terms of progress. We want to pay for, for performance. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the majority of our incentives are variable and they're tied to payment volume. So as you would see changes in payment volume, you would see requisite changes in uh, incentives. Uh, some contracts, Chris, have uh, cross-border specific incentives, but it's not the majority. So if cross-border is predominantly impacted and domestic payment volume is not, you will, you will not see a stronger correlation between gross revenue going down and incentives going down. To be more clear, gross revenue will go down more than incentives go, will go down in, in that, particular, uh, that particular case. But it's also important to know that there's a there's a, a opposing an important imposing force here, which is that we have contracts where we have multi-year incentives. So uh, it's an incentive for performance over multiple years. And what we do is, as the client is uh, uh, advancing to the degree that uh, they are meeting those incentives we accrue on an uh, ongoing basis annually as they're earning those incentives. But if there's a significant drop in performance, such that we view them as not being able to reach those uh, levels of volume to meet those incentives, in one quarter, we could unravel a incentive that is uh, a multi-year value to it but we've unraveled it in one quarter. So there, there could be those cases that occur as well. Uh, the last point I would make is that remember that a number of our revenue streams, an increasing level of our revenue streams, are not tied to incentives. Uh, CyberSource, which we talked about earlier, half a trillion dollars of volume is not tied to incentives. So net-net, I think investors, I would say to investors that they should expect that our incentives as a percent of gross revenue uh, to not be materially different from what we thought at the beginning of the year uh, before, before we knew about COVID-19. Okay, and uh, I think I've got time with you for about one more question here. So okay. I wanted to ask one about, about competition really and we're more, more specifically competitive threat because over the years Visa has dealt with uh, a number of different ones. You could arguably call the creation of the Discover Network a competitive challenge, and then, then MCX, and you had SoftCard or ISIS as it was branded. And if we think about you know China, you've got Alipay and WeChat Pay. I'm just wondering how 
how you think about the competitive environment out there and, and are there is there anything you're concerned about whether it's you know, central bank digital currencies or does Visa just try to focus on the key relationships you have and make sure that that those are, are done and the business takes care of itself just what's your philosophy on the kind of competition <laughs> That's a glass of wine question. There's a, <laughs> a lot, a, a lot packed into that. Um, look, first of all, I've had it be my philosophy since I became CEO that everybody's a potential partner until they prove otherwise, and that we shouldn't be concerned because somebody else is doing something. The the reality is the payment ecosystem is loaded with frenemies. Um, you know, we have very good uh, uh, relationships and and. Uh, and contractual relationships with PayPal on certain fronts, and we compete on other fronts. Um, we have seen one of the incredible changes that we've seen in the in the industry is that uh, three years ago, people were telling me that all of these closed uh, network wallet uh, proprietary wallet networks that were being created by mostly non-financial institutions, whether it was you know Paytm or or um, uh, GoJack in, in Asia were going to be, you know, a real problem for Visa. Well, one of the great things that's happened in the last 12 months is that these proprietary closed networks that were heretofore not available to Visa have decided to open them up. They've seen Visa's brand, our global reach, our cross-border capability, all as things that could be very additive for them. And a lot of them now have become issuers and or acquirers. And some of that, uh, the, the economics of being an issuer and acquirer in an open network than a, than a closed network. You know, you, you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned the guys in, in China. You know, we now have deals with both Ali and WeChat uh, for accommodating uh, an inbound person uh, into uh, China to shop by uh, loading their Visa card into WeChat or, or Alipay. And we the co-brand card, the first that Tencent has done with an uh, international payment scheme for Chinese customers uh, who are, would, would leave China to uh, shop or conduct business as, as global citizens. Um, you know, the big techs, we have very good relationships with, Apple, Google, Facebook, um, Amazon. I mean, these are all people that we interface a lot with and, and respect tremendously. And... Uh, you know, for the most part, uh, we have a lot of depth to our relationships. And, and look, the bottom line is some people will be strictly competitors. And, you know, frankly, the, 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 the people that are the strictest competitors to us are MasterCard and cash. Uh, beyond that, almost everybody else is, um, you know, a, a partner to somebody else here or they're a, a partner to us and a competitor somewhere else, but that's you know that that's not new to us. We've been dealing with those kind of um, uh, multi-dimensional kinds of relationships for some time in in Visa's history. Certainly, it's more complex in the last few years as many many more players, the fintechs that you mentioned and we talked about earlier, have come into play, the big techs. Uh, but all in all, um, I feel very good about the way we partner, the level of our partnerships. And, and uh, the, the way we have decked our, our people against those various players. So I think we're in uh, a good place there.
Excellent. Well, Al, with that, uh, we're out of time here for what we asked you for. We appreciate you taking the time to, to show up at our Piper Sandler Virtual Exchanges and FinTech Conference. Uh, appreciate you being our, our keynote speaker for today for the FinTech side, because you touched so much of the bank and the new FinTech world. Uh, and you, you, Visa plays very well in the, the frenemy environment, which I think is a can be a challenging place to play, but we play it successfully. So thank Chris. you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody else for uh, uh, listening to me and I uh, hope everybody stays well. Thank you. Yeah. And for everybody on the call, we're going to take a 15 minute break and then reconvene at 1.30 Eastern with Bill Krager, the CEO of Investment.